The second thing that we see that about people with obesity that is really core to what obesity is, is that they actually defend that obese state. And I'm not talking about consciously, you know, most people with obesity probably would rather not be obese. Um, so they're not consciously defending it, but there are physiological mechanisms that make it difficult for them to lose that weight. And so we call that defense of elevated body weight. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today is obesity researcher Stefan Guernet. Welcome, Stefan. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be here. So, Stefan, you've read an amazing book that was published, I think, last year, The Hungry Brain. I found it an incredible read. Um, so you're an obesity researcher, and just before we dive into all the, the content about the neurobiology of weight regulation, can you just give us a, a bit of a, a snapshot of um, your background and, and why is it you essentially transitioned out of research into um, more publishing and, and speaking to you know, the layman? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been really interested in health and nutrition from a very young age and also very interested in the brain. And um, studying the neurobiology of obesity was a way for me to put those two concepts together in a way that is not only interesting for me, but also, I believe, has the potential to help a lot of people. And so I uh, got my PhD in neurobiology at the University of Washington and then did a postdoc in the lab of Mike Schwartz at the University of Washington. And during that postdoc, I was studying the brain mechanisms of body fat regulation and eating behavior regulation. And I found that really fascinating. And one of the things that was really the most fascinating to me about that was kind of how obvious it became to me that the, that the brain was playing a central role in obesity. I mean, we have a lot of evidence that the brain regulates body fatness, that it regulates appetite. And clearly the brain generates all behaviors, including eating behavior, how much we eat, what we eat, how we use our bodies, how much we sleep, all that stuff is coming from the brain. And so, I mean, it's, it's really a, a trivial conclusion to think that the brain is the, you know, a major, if not the central driver of obesity. And yet what was really striking to me is that that idea didn't seem to really, um, be very prevalent in the public sphere when people were talking about it. I mean, people have all kinds of ideas about what causes obesity. And I'm not saying all those ideas are wrong. I think a lot of them are at least partially right. But there's, there wasn't really a central thread tying those all together and linking them to the organ that was generating all these behaviors. And so um, I saw an opportunity to bring together all this incredibly fascinating research that was happening in my field and in related fields and put it together in a way that was not only useful for researchers and clinicians, but also accessible to the general public. And so that's kind of the, the needle I was trying to thread there. Um, yeah, and so that um, that's how I came to write the book, The Hungry Brain. Um, also, in terms of my departure from academia, um, you know, there were some things that I really liked about academia and some other things that I didn't. Yeah. Um, for me, the thing that I really love about science, I'm, I'm a scientist to the bone. I love <laughs> science. Um, it just works well with my brain. But what I really like is learning about the natural world and thinking about ideas and synthesizing them. I don't, you know, the, the day to day of pipetting liquids around yeah, or working with animals. I don't think anybody really likes that that much. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a very, you know, doing actual science is a very incremental thing with few and intermittent rewards. And so, um, yeah, so, it, you know, it's, and, and I have a tremendous respect for people who continue to do that. And I could, I could still do it, you know, it's, it's not like something I dislike, but um, I thought it would be more fulfilling to me. And I thought it was, would leverage my comparative strengths better to um, become a communicator and science consultant. And so that's what I do now. Um, I have my book and I write my blog and I do interviews like this. Um, 
and I spar with the public <laughs> uh, gurus about uh, obesity and nutrition. And um, I um, also do science consulting work for an organization called GiveWell and another organization called examine.com. Um, I'm a scientific reviewer for their research research digest. So it's kind of like a, a bunch of different eggs yeah. in uh, different baskets for me, what I'm doing right now. But also I, I like to keep my hands in the scientific literature a little bit. So I'm also working on a couple of um, papers to be published in the peer-reviewed literature. Yeah, I, I saw one you just uh, published recently on the carbohydrate insulin model. Hopefully we can get to that uh, shortly. So that's great. You've yeah. really turned your face to more broadcast this information because, yeah, once you, anybody has a look at your book, it's certainly not a, a quick fix. Uh, here's the, the single villain or here's the single hero element in obesity. It's very complex and very rich. So I want to dive into some of those concepts now because I don't think they've been broadcasted much um, in the public space. So one of the, the tenets of your book is about how the body essentially defends um, weight loss when we try and attempt to lose weight. And this ties into like a, a homeostatic model of weight regulation. Uh, as I understand, it's been well known or um, suggested in the literature for 60 plus years, but it hasn't really, uh, as I said, filtered into the, the public space. So can you give us a bit of a, a snapshot of this model, this lipostat model? Yeah, absolutely. So we've known for a really long time that the brain has something to do with body fatness. And the first sign of this in the scientific literature appears in 1840, a uh, physician named Bernard Moore published a case report about uh, a woman who spontaneously developed really severe obesity, among other symptoms. And it was noted multiple times how uncommon and extreme her degree of obesity was. And this um, physician or this professor managed to do an autopsy on this woman's brain. She, she died in 1839. It was published in 1840. And what he found was that she had a tumor in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And this turns out to be, we know today, the part of the brain that's most closely involved in regulating body fatness. So, um, you know, there's, I don't want to say it's the only part of the brain that is relevant. There are other parts that are relevant as well, but this is really the core circuitry that regulates body fatness. And um, I think until you understand the role of this uh, circuit in regulating body fatness, you don't really understand what obesity is. And I know that's a strong statement, but let me explain what I mean. So obesity is basically two things. One is it's an excess of body fat mass. That's the, the obvious thing. That's the definition of it. But the second thing that we see that about people with obesity that is really core to what obesity is, is that they actually defend that obese state. And I'm not talking about consciously, you know, most people with obesity probably would rather not be obese. Um, so they're not consciously defending it, but there are physiological mechanisms that make it difficult for them to lose that weight. And so we call that defense of elevated body weight. And um, so, you know, if this, if this were not the case, it would be easy to lose fat and there would be very little obesity. We could basically weigh whatever weight we wanted um, and it would not be difficult. But the truth is that if you have someone who has obesity and you bring them down to a weight, if you, if you, cause them to lose weight until they are um, just overweight. If you compare their subsequent weight trajectory with a person who started off overweight without losing to get to that point, you will see that the person who lost the weight gains back a lot more quickly than the person who was just overweight to begin with. So there's something that is bringing us back to some weight that is kind of stamped into the brain. Um, and the way this works, we actually, we know, we, this is the crazy thing to me is we know so much about how this works. It's really well established. And yet very few people know about this or, or mm. have an appreciation for its importance. Um, basically how it works is that fat tissue secretes a hormone called leptin. 
and leptin enters the circulation in proportion to the size of your fat stores. So the more fat you have, the more leptin in your circulation, and the brain measures that leptin as a sign, as a, a marker, a measure of how much fat you're carrying. So the brain is constantly monitoring the size of your body fat stores by listening to how much leptin there is in your circulation. And there's a certain amount of leptin basically that it's looking for. And if that level of leptin drops, it triggers a starvation response. So if your fat mass goes down, your brain hears that, it doesn't like it, and it triggers a starvation response. This is a really, really simple regulatory system that presumably evolved to prevent us from starving. So when, um, you know, in our ancestors' time, this was, this was great. If your leptin starts going down, what happens is it triggers all these other neurobiological systems that motivates you to get food. You start feeling hungry. Food starts looking better and tasting better to you. Um, you start thinking more about food. Your me metabolic rate might start to drop if you lose enough fat, and that helps conserve energy. So it's really this coordinated starvation response that does a number of things to conserve energy and to put more energy back into the body to replace those depleted stores. But the thing that is really um, troublesome about this mechanism is that it can be reset so that it's defending a higher level. And so, and this is what happens to most people in countries like the United States, especially, but also Australia and most industrialized affluent countries around the world is you see that as people age, they gain fat and it becomes very difficult for them to lose that fat. And we know this is related to this leptin system because if you cause someone to lose fat experimentally, but you replace their leptin level back up to their starting point, they do not show the starvation response. So they will not have, um, they, they will not be hungrier. They will not um, be more interested in food. Their metabolic rate won't drop. So it's really this declining leptin signal that seems to be at least most of what's responsible for this starvation response. And um, yeah, so basically, you know, the goal is to have this working as well as possible and to have it defending a lean body instead of defending an obese body. But unfortunately, the lives that we live in the modern affluent industrialized world tend to push your set point is, is what I would call this defended level. It tends to push it up and up and up over the course of your life. But of course, genetics also plays a role. Yeah, it's fascinating. So just to sort of summarize, almost like the analogy of your central heating in your home, and sorry, I'm going to use uh, uh, Celsius here, degrees, but say you, you set your, your thermostat at, say, 24 degrees, and if that drip dips down, there's, um, th there's behaviors that are executed so in starvation, you become hungry and also your metabolic rates so try and bring that um, thermostat just like our heating kicks in um, when it's too cold. And conversely, which I want to touch upon now is um, we do defend excess um, body weight as well, don't we? If we overfeed subjects, they will try and um, come back down just like if it gets too hot in a house, say it gets to 28 degrees, the, the air conditioner will come on and try and bring the, the set point back down. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there is a mechanism that opposes weight gain in humans as well, but it seems to be not quite as effective <laughs> as the one that opposes weight loss. Um, I think it works better in some people than others, yeah. and I think it works better over short period of time than long periods of time. Um, but I don't know. There's still There's still things we need to learn about this because you know, experimental overfeeding studies, usually they're giving people a large number of excess calories over, you know, fairly restricted time period, whereas right. most people will gain weight gradually over the course of their lives. So we're kind of assuming that the mechanisms are similar in those two cases. Um, and I think they probably are at least to some extent, but we don't really know that for a fact. But yeah, essentially, to, to get back to your question, um, the um, if you overfeed people, just to expand on what you're saying, um, for the audience, if you, in an experimental setting, if you ask people to eat an extra, say thousand calories a day, they will start gaining fat. And you'll see a couple of things. 
first of all, and, and by the way, just to clarify, it doesn't matter whether the excess is fat or carbohydrate. Yeah. You see the same amount of fat gain under that um, in that setting. This has been done in at least two separate studies. But um, you see that the fat gain differs quite a bit by across individuals. So some people, if you feed people the exact same calorie excess, so the same calorie excess across all the individuals, what you'll see is that some people will take almost every extra calorie and put it right into their fat stores. And then some people will burn off almost all of it mm. and gain almost no fat. It's really incredible. I mean, you'll see like tenfold differences in the amount of fat stored from the same calorie excess. So there are huge differences between individuals. So that's one thing. Different people react differently to calorie excesses and, and the, the variance is enormous. But the second thing is that after the people have gained fat, and pretty much everyone does gain fat just to different degrees, after they have gained fat, if you stop overfeeding them, generally what you will see is this homeostatic reaction, just like you would see if the air conditioning was kicking on in your home, where people start eating less for a while. Like they just aren't hungry. They don't want to eat for a while. And then once they've lost the excess fat down to their previous level or lower, or sorry, down to their previous level or close to it, then their appetite normalizes and they stabilize back at their original weight or original body fatness. And so there is definitely a mechanism that um, opposes upward changes in body fatness, at least in some people and over a shorter period of time. Um, but we don't understand how it works and it doesn't seem to be caused by leptin. Yeah. Okay. Or at least leptin. Let, let me rephrase that. Leptin cannot fully account for it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, my understanding is that leptin, le leptin is essentially proportional to your, your fat mass. And I sense that leptin um, or the lack of leptin when someone's underweight has a stronger signal than an excess of leptin if somebody's overweight. Would that be? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, you have these um, randomized controlled trials of leptin administration where they give people different dose, doses of leptin, um, people who are overweight or obese, and they see whether it causes them to lose weight. Because there were these early experiments right after leptin was discovered, people were like giddy about this. Mm -hmm. There was a $12 million patent that was sold to Amgen for leptin. And people thought it was going to be this amazing weight loss drug. And they gave, they delivered leptin to mice, to, to, to lean mice, like normal mice, not obese mice. And they found this incredible thing that the fat completely melted off their bodies. Like basically there was no detectable fat on these mice's bodies after a couple of weeks of leptin injections. And it had no impact whatsoever on their lean mass. It just completely wow. destroyed their fat and didn't touch their lean mass. Yeah. So you can imagine how, <laughs> you know, the pharmaceutical industry, how they might've reacted to this, but it turns out when you take people with uh, obesity or people who are overweight and you give them, higher doses of leptin, you inject them with leptin, they will lose weight. And actually, I think the weight losses are larger than um, kind of commonly acknowledged. Right. You know, people will lose 10, 20 pounds. Wow. But there were big differences between individuals. Some people didn't lose weight at all. Some people lost more weight. But it was nothing close to these dramatic effects that you saw in lean rodents. And, and you might think, well, that, you know, mice are different species that accounts for it. But in fact, if you try the same thing in obese mice, you get the same result as you get in humans. It doesn't work that well. So there's something about obesity, we believe, that dampens that leptin signal. It causes the brain to not respond as vigorously to that leptin. And we call that leptin resistance. And that's one of the things that we think is... Um, a key driver, key driver of obesity, or at the very least, something that uh, is a key driver of the maintenance of obesity. Okay, so just to recap, so we've got the, the set point which everybody possesses. Um, so just to to reinforce this, the obese people and people who are overweight 
typically their their set point has shifted upward. And if we um, they go in some sort of weight loss program, um, whatever it is, whatever sort of hypercaloric program, they'll initially lose weight, but there's the the, the physiological sort of kickback or this metabolic adaptation where their hunger increases and their metabolic rate declines to push them back up. So, yeah, the, I'm sure that the big question is why is their set point um, further up than others? Yeah, yeah, and that's a really good question. And I, you know, there's a lot that we still don't know about this and that I still don't know about this. Um, but I think that we do know some things and I'll start with the really basic stuff in really broad strokes. Okay. So, you know, I think a useful way to approach this problem is to say, how do you induce this in experimental animals as efficiently as possible? So how, what's the most efficient way to fatten animals and cause their set point to increase? And basically the most efficient way to do that through, you know, without like lesioning their brain or doing genetic manipulations, the most efficient way to do that is to feed them human junk food. So you give them what's called the cafeteria diet. That's the technical term for it. Um, it was first published in, I think, 73 by Anthony Scalfani. And basically he just went to the grocery store and he got a lot of calorie dense, tasty foods and he put it in the cage with the rat. And what he found was that, and these were things like, some of the some of them aren't even necessarily that unhealthy. Like um, it was Fruit Loop cereal and bananas and peanut butter and salami and, and then cookies and cake and like just a wide variety of tasty calorie dense foods, some of which we would consider very unhealthy and some of which we might say, that's ah, not so bad. Um, and basically, as soon as you put these delicious calorie-dense foods into the rat's cage, it completely ignores its healthy, unrefined pellets. And I call it healthy and unrefined because it's mostly just corn and soybeans, and rodents do fine on that. And they just start gorging on this food, and they gain fat really quickly. And they gain fat faster than they do on any other diet that has ever been devised for a rodent. And this isn't just about rodents. I mean, you see this with a variety of other species. Like you see this with raccoons that rummage through human trash cans. You see it with bears. You see it with monkeys in Thailand that people feed snack foods and sodas and things. Human food is incredibly fattening to a wide variety of non-human species. And when, when you give them this food, they're set point goes up too. So they get really fat, their set point goes up, and then it becomes difficult for them to lose weight. So they will actually defend that higher level of body fatness. So we know that there's something about that that matters. And, and by the way, if you have them exercise regularly, it doesn't prevent this from happening, but it attenuates it. So you get substantially less of this fat gain and this increase in set point if you have the animals exercise regularly. So that seems to be something that protects partially, not completely against this type of diet. And um, yeah, so what is it exactly about food, about these types of food that does this to us? And I, I think there's a couple of different ideas on this um, that I think are pretty well supported one of them is that it may have to do, you know, I shouldn't say pretty well supported. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give you the impression that these are ironclad. I'm, I'm proposing these as hypotheses that have a reasonable amount of scientific support and that we should continue to study because we, this is not ironclad, but these are, these are good hypotheses that have some data behind them. Um, one of them is just overeating itself. So consumption of excess calories actually increases leptin levels. And so, yeah, so I mentioned that leptin tracks fat mass, but what I didn't mention is that it also tracks your short-term calorie mm, intake. So intriguing. your leptin level, yeah, is determined by both your fat mass and your recent calorie intake. And so it kind of responds both to short-term and long-term energy intake. And so if you... Um, 
eat a really big meal, let's say you eat a huge meal for Thanksgiving or you eat, you know, let's say you eat a lot in the days around Thanksgiving too, because people are bringing cookies over and there's leftover chi- uh, turkey and okay, you guys don't. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe maybe Australia does something. Yeah. <laughs> let's say like okay, um, Christmas is similar. Right, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, cr- Christmas. Let's say Christmas. Um, so yeah, Thanksgiving in the U.S. That's like this the the prototypical overeating holiday. It's yeah. just like eat till you explode. But okay, we'll say Christmas. Um, and yeah, so let's say you've overeaten for a few days. You've consumed more calories than your body requires. Um, your leptin level will go up. And that seems to play a role in leptin resistance. There are experiments suggesting that if you give, if you just inject animals with excess leptin um, under certain conditions that I will explain in a moment, that will actually promote leptin resistance and fat gain. So basically, leptin too much leptin seems to desensitize the leptin responsive circuits and make them require they kind of adapt to that higher level of leptin and then they require it to meet your set point so it's kind of like turning your thermostat up a little bit like imagine if the thermometer in your thermostat wasn't very good at detecting the temperature and and you know what used to be um it it used to turn on the heat at 24 or let's say it used to turn on the um it used to regulate around 24 and now it's regulating around 26 or 28 or something like that because it's just not as sensitive and so it requires more leptin to detect to, to feel satisfied essentially that you have enough body fat and um so uh yeah so what you see, interestingly, though, if you have animals on a healthy diet, on a regular healthy diet, and you give them excess leptin, it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't make them fat. It doesn't cause leptin resistance. Right. But when you pair that excess leptin with an unhealthy diet, with a refined, highly palatable diet, suddenly you see that it actually exacerbates the fat gain and exacerbates the upward resetting of the set point that you see. And so I think there's something going on where um, this combination of excess leptin and something about the food, not quite sure exactly what, but something about low quality, high calorie dense palatable food is those two things are coming together to, it's like a two hit model. Mm. Those things are coming together to increase body fatness and cause animals to defend that higher level of body fatness. And another thing I want to mention just really quick is that I think, you know, one really good contender for this other factor is, and it's, this is probably not the only thing, but it could be a thing, is the palatability of the diet or the diet's reward value. So we see in animal models, diets that animals really, really like, that they find really, really delicious, they will not only overeat, and not only gain fat on those diets, they will actually increase their defended level of body fatness. So they will, if you try to reduce their calorie intake, they will act like they'll they'll activate the starvation response, even if they have already have an elevated calorie intake and elevated body fat level. So, and then you can switch them back onto healthy food, and their and their um, defended level of body fatness will go back down. So. There's something, seems to be something specific about food palatability that's playing a role in all this. It's fascinating. So there is some hope there from the animal studies. And just wanted to touch upon, um, strangely, it doesn't seem to be there's a lot of human data on this, but in your book, you've got these really uh, fascinating uh, small studies or anecdotes of people doing the opposite in a sense of um, having a almost a zero reward type of diet or very low palatability. Can you explain some of those little anecdotes and, and the effects there? Yeah, yeah. So some of them are anecdotes and some of them are scientific studies, but none of them, you know, they they were done a long time ago and none of them are really like the kind of study that you would really want to see in the 21st century. <laughs> none of them really achieve that level of rigor that you would want. Um, but yeah, they're actually not only animal studies, but human studies that support this. So 
Um, there are a couple of them. I'll start off with the one by uh, Van Itali and colleagues. Um, they took um, people who had obesity in, uh, well, they took two groups of people, people who were lean and people who had obesity and who were hospitalized in a setting where um, they could control all of their food. So they had complete control over the food that these people were eating. There was no opportunity for cheating. And what they did was they put them on a bland liquid diet. And so it was basically a straw that was hooked up to a container in a refrigerator and the straw had a little button on it and they could push it and receive a certain amount of standardized amount of this uh, meal replacement, this bland meal replacement into their mouths. And, uh, and I want to say, by the way, this, this stuff had a fair amount of sugar in it, mm. in it. So keep that in mind. Um, it was sweet, but it was otherwise bland. And they were just instructed to eat as much as you need to feel full. Just eat however much you want. And they started with lean people, and they, they gave them this regimen, and they started uh, consuming this stuff. And it didn't really do anything to their weight or their calorie intake. Their calorie intake remained approximately equal to their needs. They ate as much as they needed. They didn't lose or gain weight. What happened when they did this with people with obesity was really striking. Their calorie intake plummeted. So instead of eating normal weight maintenance number of calories, they were eating just a few hundred calories or even less, as little as I think like the lowest was maybe 140 calories. It was like it, was like it flipped some switch in their brains and all of a sudden their brains didn't want to defend that higher level of body fatness anymore. And they have... Um, and this went on in one in the case of one patient it went on for months and he just didn't have any appetite having this be his only source of food he just had he wasn't even starving he was eating as much of it as he wanted he just didn't want to eat any more than that he didn't have an appetite and this person ended up losing i think 200 pounds over the course of about a year and so that was about half of his body weight so this huge effect um, that study was actually replicated in another cohort uh, a while later, and uh, the effect wasn't as consistent in adolescents. So I think most of the adolescents they tried showed that same response, but a couple of them didn't, if I recall. All of the adults showed that same response. And so um, so that's one study, and then that's pretty extraordinary to me. That's really extraordinary. That shows that there's some kind of there's something important going on between the reward system and the energy homeostasis system. And so uh, another study that was done had people, two groups of people lose the same amount of weight. And this was done by Michel Cabanac, uh, who's a researcher in Quebec somewhere. And uh, they had two groups of people. One of them lost weight just by portion control. So they just ate less of their normal diet. The other one ate less by using a bland liquid diet. And then basically they measured, uh, they used a measure that he came up with to measure the starvation response in the two groups. And what they found was that people who lost weight by eating the bland diet did not see an activation of the starvation mechanism, whereas people who ate uh, less of their normal diet and lost the same amount of weight had a very vigorous activation of their starvation mechanism. And anecdotally, he says in the discussion, he talks about how it was really hard for the people who were just doing portion control. They were dreaming about food <laughs> and struggling with this restriction, whereas the people who were eating the bland diet, it wasn't difficult at all, and they weren't even thinking about it. So clearly there was something that differed profoundly in the brain responses to these two um, scenarios. And then there are a bunch of anecdotes too. For example, um, there's a lot of people who have gone on this so-called potato <laughs> diet. You can find these anecdotes all over. Um, and they see basically the same thing. So this is a diet where you just eat potatoes, which are interesting in that it's one of the few foods that you can eat exclusively for long periods of time and meet, approximate your nutritional needs. So uh, they contain almost everything you need. And, 
and uh, people, their appetite just plummets and they start losing weight on this regimen and it's actually difficult for them to eat enough to maintain their weight. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, so there's a broad swath of evidence. Now, we don't have like really big well-controlled, randomized controlled trials in humans supporting this. But I think there is a fair amount of evidence from a variety of different places um, enough to support this hypothesis. And I think it actually also makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint for what it's worth. Um, I think, you know, foods that have a high reward value or that are very palatable, that taste really good to us, that those are foods that are implicitly valued by the human brain. So what that means when something tastes really good or when you crave it that means your brain, in, on an intuitive, non-conscious level, places a very high value on that food and wants you to eat it. Generally, that's because those foods are high in calorie density and full of fat and sugar and all the stuff we're trying not to eat. But um, the and essentially, I view I view this as the brain just finding another way to get you to eat it. Mm. It increases your set point and it says, "Hey." You know, I see that you have all this amazing food around you. I'm going to find a way to allow you to eat even more of it by increasing your set point a little bit. And that way, you know, maybe tomorrow you won't have access to all this amazing food. So I'm going to let you eat tons of it right now. Unfortunately, tomorrow we do still have access yeah. to it. That's the problem. Yeah. So let's move on now to this uh, reward eating concept in uh, in the brain, there's different regions, again, that seem to um, be motivated by the consumption of these uh, highly palatable foods. So can you just explain that circuitry and, and why it exists, do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, so yeah, so we have these motivational circuits in our brains and their job is to, the, the, the basic non-conscious motivational circuitry its job is to get us to do things that improve our chances of survival and reproduction. That's the currency of natural selection is reproductive, reproductive success. And so over the course of evolutionary history, we've been selected for brain circuits that drive behaviors that increase our reproductive success. And one of the most important things for re reproductive success, success is getting enough calories and nutrients. And so um, we have very powerful mechanisms in our brains that are dedicated to driving us toward getting sufficient calories and nutrients. And I think, um, and we have to consider the context in which those evolved because those brain circuits didn't evolve in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Those brain circuits are at least, you know, many parts of those, the, the core circuitry is, uh, Five, 560 million years old or maybe even older so like it dates to the cambrian explosion back when the, you know the very first um back when the very first brains were evolving so basically evolution figured out some cool stuff to do with neurons and that stuff got passed down for 560 million years and we still have it in our brains and we know this because you can look at animals that diverged from us that long ago in evolutionary history and they have these same circuits in their brain. It's almost identical. It's wow. amazing. And so I'm talking about the basal ganglia, which includes the um, nucleus accumbens or ventral striatum, as I refer to it in my book, um, as well as the dorsal striatum and other structures within that. And then the way that they communicate with the cortex of the brain is also very similar in uh, lampreys, although of course, their cortex is much more rudimentary. So um, the so um, essentially, you know, these circuits evolved to get us to eat food that would have supported the reproductive success of our ancestors. And so, it's hardwired to look for certain food properties um, that support that would have supported our ancestors' reproductive health. And so, these are fat and carbohydrate like sugar and starch uh protein glutamate which is that meaty umami flavor and bone broth and monosodium glutamate soy sauce and um salt sodium chloride 
and that's the only one on that list mm. that is that does not contain calories. All of the others are calorie sources. And so the brain is, and, and by the way, I want to clarify, these are the substances that my best guess currently is that these are the ones that the brain is hardwired to seek. Um, it's possible that there are other substances too, but to my knowledge, they have not really been supported um, by current research. So I think those are really the, the key um, substances that the human brain is hardwired to seek. And the way that works is when you eat a food, it goes down into your digestive tract, uh, receptors in your mouth, and especially your upper small intestine start to detect the chemical composition of it, and that sends signals to your brain. And the more of those substances I just listed that are in the food, the higher the concentration, the more it spikes dopamine in your brain in these motivational parts of the brain that I was talking about, like the, especially the ventral striatum. And the more dopamine goes up in your ventral striatum, the more you learn about that food and you learn to like the sensory qualities of that food and those become motivational triggers. And so if you eat pizza for the first time, your brain gets wind that it's full of concentrated carbohydrate and fat and salt. And that starts to spike your dopamine a bunch. And all of a sudden your brain remembers, it stamps in the memory of the appearance of the pizza, the triangular slice, the round pepperoni, the smell of it, the way the box looked, who you were with, uh, where you were, what the brand name of it was, all that stuff, all the sensory experiences associated with it get stamped into your brain and become motivational triggers so that the next time you smell the pizza or you see it, dopamine starts to spike in your brain again before you even taste it. And that motivates you to eat the pizza. And if, if, if you have been very strongly reinforced by this pizza because it has very high levels of these nutrients that your brain likes, then you will have a very strong motivation to eat it the next time you encounter it. In other words, you'll have a very strong craving. And that craving will be, A, very difficult for you to, to control. It may be, depending on who you are. And B, it will cause you to eat beyond your energy needs often. And has there been recent research, has it been probably more than just recent, but uh, people who are overweight tend to have a, like a stronger reward to these high-calorie foods? Is that correct? Yeah. So um, what you see is that people who are heavier tend to have a stronger motivational response to calorie-dense, highly palatable foods relative to non-food items. And so if you test how motivated someone is um, to get a piece of candy, for example, and you compare that to their motivational level to play a video game or read a magazine, what you will see is that the ratio of those two is higher for people with obesity than people who do not have obesity. And in fact, you can even start with a bunch of people who are at the same weight and you can predict their future weight trajectory by using the same wow. ratio. It's called the relative reinforcing value of food. And uh, it's actually a really strong predictor of weight gain and not so surprising, right? I mean, people who are strongly motivated to eat food are going to gain more weight than people who are not strongly motivated to eat food relative to doing other activities. But certainly, I mean, it um, the fact that you can predict weight gain over time by this, I think, uh, validates the concept, validates the usefulness of it. It's fascinating. So just to uh, recap with the... Uh with the dopamine release from eating, it's A, calorie density, so the more concentrated it is. And also uh, one thing that I, I was uh, surprised to find out was that essentially all macronutrients do this. It's not just sugar is often sort of maligned as the quote-unquote addictive substance, but it could be all or any. And in particular, I sense it's the pairing um, or the combination of the macronutrients, particularly the, the fats and carbohydrates, is that um, accurate? Yeah, that's, that is accurate. And 
I think, you know, the thing that people think is addictive depends on what, you know, the nutritional trends of the day. But right now the pendulum has swung against sugar. And so sugar is viewed as the evil addictive substance. Um, but in fact, if you look at the studies that have actually measured what are the foods that tend to trigger addiction or sorry, tend to trigger uh, cravings most often and what are the foods that tend to trigger addiction-like behavior most often in people, if you just survey people and ask them what foods, what you'll find is that the types of foods are not those that are most concentrated in sugar. Generally, what you see is that the biggest offenders are foods that combine sugar with fat. So things like cookies and cake and brownies and ice cream, those types of things. Um, and also fatty, savory foods. So things like French fries, things like chips and bacon, those things also are um, very common triggers for cravings. And those things don't even have sugar in them at all or very little. So, um, and then if you look at foods that are just sugar, like hard candy, some people report those as triggers for cravings, but it's just a lot less common. Um, than those other foods that I mentioned. So really what we see is that foods that combine these different reward factors, these different things that cause dopamine in the brain, all in the same food, those are the foods that really trigger our motivational processes in our brain and reinforce behavior and reinforce our motivations and drive very strong cravings. And we now have a more direct demonstration of this with some functional MRI studies and reinforcement studies showing that the combination of fat and sugar is more rewarding than either one alone. So I think, you know, I think this is a really uh, a great opportunity for us to kind of dispel a common myth, um, which is that sugar is the thing that's addictive and other things like fat are not. Um, I think, that's pretty clearly wrong. And I think that's a product of the sort of cultural moment we're in right now. Mm. But I think the worst offender is really combinations of those factors we were talking about, which just to reiterate are fat, carbohydrate, including starch and sugar, uh, protein, glutamate, and salt. Great. So now just uh, as a bit of a segue, and we'll, we'll keep it pretty succinct. I might try and get Kevin Holland to go through the, the studies um, in detail, but it's a bit of a segue. What happens if we tease out these two macronutrients then? So the, as you know, the other thing that's um, rife is these macronutrient wars that are going on. And as you said, you're often debating these ideas. So low fat, low carb, um, we've got you know advocates in either camp. But what does the, the data say, like head to head and is there a superior one for fat loss? Yeah. Um, you know, up until recently, I would have said that both low fat and low carb cause weight loss, but low carb tends to be a little bit more effective um, for the average person, although it varies by individual. So, you know, there's not a one size fits all. But actually, <clears throat> I don't even really believe that anymore. Um, there was a study that came out that really um, I felt was very, very informative. It was one of the studies that was actually funded by the Nutrition Science mm -hmm. Initiative, which is Gary Taubes' um, organization that um, has been funding some science. And um, it was conducted by um, Gardner. Gardner yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can't. His the diet name is yeah, the diet yeah. studies with Gardner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, his first name is escaping me, but yeah, it was a diet fit study. And uh, yeah, Chris Gardner. And um, yeah, so basically what they did was they took a large number of people. So this, this was a really rigorous study. I mean, I, I really admire the way that um, these researchers put this study together. It was really state of the art, very large. It was a large study. So, you know, very high statistical power to detect effects. Um, and they divided people into two groups. One was a low carbohydrate diet group. One was a low fat diet group. 
Um, which, you know, th- that has been done by many studies before. But what was different about this study is that, first of all, there were no calorie intake targets. So often the low-fat diet will get a calorie intake target and they'll be trying to do portion control on top of low-fat. In this case, neither diet had a calorie intake target. And furthermore, the researchers really focused heavily on diet quality. So both people in both diet groups were encouraged to eat really high quality, unrefined food and not do the sort of like junk food, low fat diet where you're eating, you know, low fat cookies and fat free yeah. ice cream and stuff. And, and I, and I think that's really important and, and we'll see why in a moment, but, um, then they followed them up for a year. And, and another thing I want to add, they started people off by saying, I want you to eat as little carbohydrate as you possibly can for the first, I can't remember, it was like one or two months. I think it was, you know, under 50 grams of carbohydrate or 20 grams 20, a day, yeah. something like well, 20, 20, for, 20 okay. for fat, I think 20 grams, might've been 20 grams for each year. Yeah. So like really low fat or really low carbohydrate. And, and then they said, okay, I want you to maintain this really strict diet for a little while. And then after that, I want you to go to a place where you feel like you could sustain this for a long time. So just kind of incrementally increase the fat or the carbohydrate until you feel like you're in a a sustainable place, but keep it as low as possible. And, um, and so that was, that was the setup. And then over the course of a year, they measured all kinds of things. Um, body weight of course is one of them. And, what they found is that both groups lost a very similar amount of weight at one year. I think it was about 12 or 14 pounds, somewhere in that range. Um, and so the, the, the weight loss was actually very similar between those two groups, even though neither group was restricting calories. And so I think that suggests that um, when you're focusing on diet quality, when you're eating a high quality diet and you're not just eating low fat junk food or low carb junk food, it's actually, you're going to get very similar results, whether you do low fat or low carb. And maybe the level of success you get will depend more on you as an individual, how, you know, how well that diet works with your body than it will on, you know, whether, you know, it's, then it will on the diet's inherent effectiveness on average, you know? So, Um, I think that's what I would say. And furthermore, I would say that, um, you know, it's not really popular right now to say that fat might contribute to obesity, Mm -hmm. dietary fat. But uh, the more time goes on, the more I'm convinced that it actually plays a pretty important role. Yeah. Um, And so anyway, I'll just leave it at that. And we can expand (laughs) on that if, if you're interested, but I'll leave it there for now. All right, uh, that's yeah. Food for thought, pardon the pun, but yeah, I think the the pendulum is swinging back. Um, and yeah, I think that the real message, as you said, is that that quality component. Because I think what's the phrase now? The the dirty keto diet. That, um, yeah, if you're going low, whichever macronutrient you're choosing to go low on, if you keep the quality uh, high, then I understand. As I understand, then you're more likely to allow that set point to. Uh, settle back down and you're not getting that reward eating which would trigger the the overeating so yeah hopefully time will tell and i think kevin hall's doing a study on that with the ultra processed food versus uh a more of a, a whole food diet so time will tell um or hopefully we'll have more data to support that yeah i'm really interested to to see the results there i mean i think this is a really important topic of research i think this is where it's going to be going, or at least where it should be going, is understanding the role, not just of individual nutrients, but of food processing and um, kind of bigger picture diet quality issues in uh, obesity and and health. I think that is really important. Mm. All right. Well, let this be my last question. And if you had, say, a unrestricted grant and you could do any research you want, what would be the, the, the type of study you designed to try and um, support or, um, you know, test these hypotheses. Seize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so off the top of my head, 
Um, that's a tough question. Sorry to be on the spot. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. Off the top of my head, um, I I do have an idea that I've been wanting to test since I was a postdoc, and I think it's a I think it's a really important idea. Um, so as as you know, I've um, articulated this hypothesis about interactions between the body fat regulatory circuits in the brain and the reward circuits in the brain that are pretty much right next to them and that are connected to them, we know, with reciprocal neural connections. And so I want to know, and, and, and we, know that, we know that your energy homeostasis system, your energy regulating system affects your reward system because when you lose weight or you don't eat for a while, it, you get more tempted by food. So we know that it goes in that direction and food tastes better. Like, you know, people say hunger is the best sauce. Mm -hmm. That is because our energy regulating circuits are interacting with our reward circuits um, and turning up a reward when energy is low. But um, I think there's these interactions going in the other direction too. I think when food is really rewarding, it starts altering our energy regulating circuits too. And, and I told you about some evidence. Um, I told you in our, in our conversation about some evidence supporting that. But I'd like to test that really rigorously. So put people in a setting where they're eating food that has the exact same composition, two, two groups. They're eating literally the exact same thing, except it's composed in different ways, such that one is really bland and not very good tasting, and one of them is is tasty. So like let's say you have like a normal, you know, mixed meal. You have your meat and potatoes and salad. And on one side you have people sitting with a plate with that in front of them. And on the other <laughs> side, they take it and they put it all in a blender and you have to drink it, you know, like something <laughs> like that. So that it's the exact same thing, but nutritionally it's the exact same thing, but the way that you perceive it sensor sensory wise is very different and so um i would like to see that in a weight loss trial where they're measuring the starvation response and measuring it in a really rigorous way like doing functional mri to look at brain activity measuring metabolic rate measuring all these things that they've done in the leptin studies in a really rigorous way but to see if this uh, the bland version could attenuate the starvation response. And I suspect that it would based on previous evidence. And I think demonstrating this with modern uh, tools, modern research tools would be really useful for the scientific community. Sounds fascinating. Um, maybe one day we might see that. Thank you for sharing that insight. So we'll wrap up now. Um, so before we go, just can you tell the audience about uh your offerings you've got your book um twitter your website yeah absolutely so the book is called the hungry brain um it it's available um should be available on amazon or anywhere else um any other major bookseller i know that um the rights were sold in australia as well so um most english-speaking countries should have it available and, and some non-English as well. Um, I am pretty active on Twitter. My handle is at WHSource. A lot of what I do is just tweet interesting studies, um, but sometimes I share my opinions or share blog posts from my blog, which is at stephanguiana.com. Um, and if you don't want to spell that, you can do wholehealthsource.org, and that will take you there. And finally... Uh, also wanted to mention the Ideal Weight Program, which is a weight management program that I co-developed with uh, my friend and business partner, Dan Party. Um, and you can find that at uh, humanos.io, um, I think. We'll, no, I'm not remembering. What <laughs> we'll, we'll put the links on our, <laughs> on our webpage anyway. All right, thanks. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember what the end of that is. Anyway, <laughs> if you search for human OS, you'll be able to find it. Uh, okay, people should be able to find that. Uh, Stefan, it's been great chatting with you. You've been really clear and concise and very informative. Um, 
I think people are going to learn a lot or they'll be uh, ruminating a lot on some of these topics. Yeah, if I could just urge the, the listeners to, to get a copy of the book, it's it's incredible read. And um, you should learn, as I said, some really new ways of thinking about obesity. So thanks again, Stefan, for all your time. All right. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.